0: Matthew 13 contains Jesus' third recorded sermon. And Jesus preaches this sermon in response to his rejection by the Jewish religious leaders. As Messiah, he came to offer his kingdom. They rejected him as their Messiah. And as a result, he withdrew the offer of establishing the physical kingdom of God on earth until a later time. And so the disciples here are filled with many questions regarding the kingdom. You see, the Hebrew Scriptures contained no information about what would happen to God's kingdom if Israel rejected it. However, in eternity past, God in His infinite wisdom designed a plan for His kingdom. And that plan involves the kingdom being established on earth and Jesus reigning over it as king. Because God knows all things probable and possible, He is fully prepared for Israel's rejection. His plan was designed, it was set down before creation. Nonetheless, God chose to keep that plan a secret or a mystery. And so with Israel's rejection, the Father now authorizes Jesus, the Son, to reveal the hidden wisdom, the mysteries of the kingdom to the disciples. And so in Matthew 13, Jesus preaches this sermon about the kingdom. In this sermon, He uses parables, eight parables, to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, you'll recall what is a parable. It is a story that has a literal and a figurative aspect for the purpose of communicating a religious or ethical truth. Here, the purpose of these eight parables is to focus us upon God, His kingdom and his will for that kingdom, and for the kingdom citizens. Jesus says here that he taught in parables, so that he could reveal to the disciples the mysteries of the kingdom, but at the same time prohibit those who rejected him from understanding those same truths. The parables will reveal to us that while the establishment of the physical kingdom of God is on hold, the spiritual aspect of that kingdom is still at hand. An entrance into the spiritual kingdom is precipitated upon repenting of our sin and believing the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus, the Son of God, died, shed His blood to atone for sin, was buried, and rose again the third day on the scripture. So entrance into the spiritual kingdom, and ultimately entrance into the spiritual kingdom, is conditioned upon repentance and faith. Now the eight parables here in Matthew 13 reveal the spiritual aspect of God's kingdom during this present age. What's happening with the kingdom right now while the physical is on hold? And we can organize these eight parables into four phases. Phase one, the inauguration of the kingdom. Phase two, the opposition to the kingdom. Phase three, the people of the kingdom. And phase four, the judgment of the kingdom. Now, so far, the sower of the soils and today the wheat and the weeds parable comprise the inauguration phase of the spiritual aspect of God's kingdom. Now, to recap, in the parable of the sower in the soils, Jesus reveals that believers, you and I, are sowers. We are spreading the gospel seed far and wide upon the soil of humanity's heart. And as the gospel seed is cast... You and I can expect four reactions to the gospel as depicted in these four different soils. There is the hard soil, that is the unresponsive heart that outright rejects the gospel. There is the rocky soil, or the superficial heart, which will profess faith but later repudiate it in the presence of hardship or hostility. Then there is number three, the thorny soil, or the worldly heart, which which professes faith, but never repents of its sin. And then there is the good soil, the receptive heart, that genuinely repents its sin and believes the gospel. And so the spiritual aspect of the kingdom is going to be inaugurated with the declaration of the gospel. And the inauguration of that spiritual kingdom is the thought behind the Great Commission. Jesus said, Go therefore in all the world, and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations Matthew 28:19 and Mark 16:15 50 days after Christ's resurrection the spiritual kingdom was inaugurated on the day of pentecost in acts chapter 2 and verse 5 it tells us that there were Jews living in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under earth or excuse me under heaven Before all these individuals, Peter and the disciples stand and declare this message in Acts 2, 22-24. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. When the people heard the gospel, they asked Peter, What should we do? And here's Peter's reply in Acts 2.38, Repent for the forgiveness of sins. And so on the day of Pentecost... In A.D. 29, there were over 1 million people in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Following the proclamation of the gospel, 3,000 were saved and the church was born. We say, wow, man, that's tremendous. 3,000 out of 1 million. Not so impressive, is it? But nonetheless, the church was born. And just as Jesus said in the parable of the sower in the soils, that's what we see happen on the day of Pentecost. The disciples were the sowers, the gospel was the seed, and the million plus hearts were the soil. And of those million plus people who heard the gospel, some outright rejected it. Some professed faith and later repudiated it. Some professed faith but never repented of their sins. Out of one million plus people, only 3,000 genuinely repented and believed the gospel. Nonetheless, the spiritual kingdom was inaugurated with the new birth of those 3,000. The theme of the inauguration phase is planting. In the sower in the soils, the gospel is being planted in humanity's heart. However, in this parable... One we'll consider today, the wheat and weeds. There's another type of planting that occurs, this one with a nefarious purpose. And while Jesus and his followers are busy planting the gospel seed, we're going to see that Satan is busy planting weeds amid the wheat. And hence, Jesus presents in Matthew 13 24 to 30, and 36 to 43 the wheat, the weeds, and the kingdom. Now, we're going to follow the same pattern we set forth in the parable of the sower and the soils. First, we're going to look at the presentation of the parable, and then the interpretation of the parable. So, Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Let's look at the presentation of the wheat and weeds parable. The presentation of the weed and wheat's Or wheat and weeds parable. Verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now remember, a parable is a contrast between two objects. Jesus says here, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. That verb may be compared. Homoio. io. What does that mean? It means here is something similar in characteristic. Now, the kingdom may be compared, or you may have in your translation, the kingdom of heaven is like. That is a Jewish idiom, which means to express a comparison to say, just as it is with this field, so it is with the kingdom. And here Jesus compares the present state of the kingdom to a man sowing seed in his field. And the following verses are going to explore how the kingdom compares to a man sowing seed in his field. Again, the picture of a sower sowing seed is a normal scene to these, Galilean, to these Galileans. They see this all the time. And you'll recall that in the first century, plowing and sowing coincided. Donkey would go forth uh, carrying a bucket of, filled with seed from which the farmer would cast seed upon the field. Behind him, a team of oxen or a team of donkeys would follow with a small plow covering the scattered seed into the soil. Now, according to verse 27, the man who sowed the seed was none other than the landowner. Now, here's a distinction from the first parable of the sower and the soils. In that first parable, the sowers were tenant farmers. That is, they are individuals who farm the field of the landowner. That's us. Here in this parable, though, the sower is the landowner himself. And what does he do? The landowner plants good seeds in his field. Now again, according to verse 25, what is the seed he is planting? Wheat. Wheat. Now, let me just make a comment here regarding wheat and barley. Barley and wheat seeds are planted at the same time during the month of Kislev, approximately November, December. The barley would be harvested in Nisan, March or April in time for the Feast of Passover, Unleavened Bread and First Fruits. The wheat was harvested in Savan, May or June, in time for the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Now I want you to hold on to that piece of information. File that away. Put a pin in it, because it's going to be very important in a moment. So while the landowner's men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Now who are these men? These men are his slaves, his doulas, his servants... And while they were sleeping, the landowner's enemy planted tares or weeds among the wheat. Notice he is the enemy of the landowner, implying that there's an ongoing feud between these two individuals. The fact that this act was committed while the servants are sleeping is not meant to impugn the character of the servants. Nowhere do we see the servants condemned for sleeping. Instead, it demonstrates the illicitness of the activity. To do something against someone asleep or to do something under the cover of darkness is nefarious. And that nefarious action is planting tares. Now, what are tares? The word tares comes from the Greek word zizanion, zizanion. And it describes a type of ryegrass that is called darnel. Darnell is a weed that is almost indistinguishable from wheat, until the ears of grain appear. So it is almost impossible until the fruit begins to appear to distinguish the weed from the wheat. Unlike wheat, which is edible, Darnell is poisonous. And rival farmers often attempted to ruin their competitors' wheat fields by planting weeds among the wheat. You see the weed, the darnel stole light, stole water, stole nutrients that the weed needed or that the wheat needed to grow. This attempt to ruin someone's crop was so commonplace in the first century that Rome enacted a law prohibiting someone from sowing poisonous weeds in someone else's field. Okay. Now the landowner's servants were none the wiser of this insidious plot until the wheat sprouted and bore grain. Then the tares became evident. So months have gone by. And now that the harvest is drawing near, they're saying, wait a minute, there's weeds in this wheat field. As stated, Darnell is indistinguishable from wheat until the year of grain appears. Finding the weeds, the servant set forth two questions to the landowner. First, they asked, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? And second, supposing the answer to the first question was no, they inquired, Well, how then does it have tares? And so, having no reason to answer the first question, of course I sowed good seed. The landowner says to the second question, An enemy has done this. An enemy has done this so the servants now ask well do you want us then to go and gather them up remember that until the grain or fruit of the wheat appears it's indistinguishable from the weeds but at this point the grain has appeared and the servants can certainly now distinguish between the wheat and the weeds but the landowner replies no for while you are gathering up the tares you might uproot the wheat with them Because the weeds had grown unnoticed, their root system had become intertwined with the wheat roots. And any attempt to uproot the weed would cause damage to the wheat. Instead of attempting to uproot the weeds, the landowner says, allow both to grow together until the harvest. At the time of the harvest, the landowner is going to send out reapers to harvest the field. And he will instruct them to gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into his barns. Notice the reapers are not the servants. There are two different groups of workers here. The servants most likely help to plant and to water and to weed the field, but they're not the harvesters. The landowner has a particular group of reapers for the harvest season. Now the rapers were to do what? Cut and bundle up the weeds at harvest. Weeds had only one purpose, and that was to be fuel in the furnace. The wheat, on the other hand, would be bundled into sheaves, transported to the threshing floor, and then stored in the landowner's barn. So that is the presentation of the wheat and weeds parable. Let's move to verse 36 to 43. Matthew 13, 36 to 43 sets forth the interpretation of the sower and or excuse me of the wheat and weeds parable. The interpretation of the wheat and weeds parable, Matthew 13, beginning with verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, "Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field." And he says to them, "The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world." And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. And just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks into the furnace of fire, or excuse me, all stumbling blocks and all those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now I want to note something here. The interpretation is not presented to the crowds, but only to the disciples. Matthew says Jesus left the crowd and went into the house. And presumably this house refers to Peter's where Jesus stayed while he was in Capernaum. And what we're seeing here is that the sermon continued back at Peter's house. But but Jesus' only parishioners were the disciples. Only the disciples are now present for the interpretation. You see, their interest is piqued. They came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now see, they returned to the home. They could have gone back to their regular tasks. They could have presumed the sermon was finished. But they wanted to know more. And they pleaded with Jesus, Keep teaching us. You see, friends, what we learn here is that genuine disciples have an interest in spiritual things. They desire, genuine disciples desire to understand the scriptures. Genuine disciples seek to learn spiritual things. What does it say of the so called many disciples today who have no interest in spiritual things? Who have no interest or desire to understand the scriptures? What does it say of those who claim to be disciples who, desire, who have no desire to learn God's word? Does any of that describe you? Are you someone who has no interest in spiritual things? Are you someone who has no desire to understand the scripture? Are you someone that has no desire to learn God's word? Why? What does, the, what does your lack of interest and desire say about you? That's your salvation. He who has spiritual ears ought to hear... But if there's no interest, no desire, maybe it's because there's no genuine faith and repentance. Friends, how many sit under the teaching of God's Word, bored, and counting down the time till it's done? Something's seriously wrong. When a professed believer finds the teaching of God's Word boring, Now, undoubtedly, I will confess, not every speaker is dynamic. Some speakers are downright dry. But the Word of God is never boring. The Scripture is living and active. It is good news. And so if you've got to sit under a dry speaker then ask God for ears to hear what God's Word says when your ears can no longer bear the dryness of the one preaching God's Word. The answer isn't, well, I'm going to stay home. That's not the answer. The answer is, I need to be under, God, under the preaching of God's Word. Irregardless. We should care more about the message than the messenger. How many critique the preacher's tone of voice? How many critique the preacher's teaching style? Now, you see, most critiques or complaints about sermons today are not about the doctrinal soundness of the sermon. I can't tell you the last time I heard anybody critique a sermon and said, boy, man, that was doctrinally off, or the doctrine was wrong. I don't hear that. Okay? Here's what the typical, and the, the, you know, I'm not just speaking for myself, but I'm saying in general, this is what you hear today. The sermon's too long. The sermon's too short. The sermon's not entertaining enough. The sermon was overly entertaining. The sermon was too deep. The sermon was not profound enough. The sermon was applicable. The sermon wasn't applicable. My friends, I'm going to be very blunt and honest. When you respond to a sermon or a Bible lesson with those type of complaints, it says more about you than the one preaching. It says you, can, you possibly are suffering from hard-heartedness. See, you don't have eyes or ears to hear the spiritual things. That's why you're so focused on the one speaking and how he's speaking rather than what he's speaking. You only hear and see him. And as such, you develop a critical spirit. We need to be aware of that. You know, the Berean believers are an example for us to follow. An example that we ought to strive to imitate. Luke says in Acts 17, 11, they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now folks, listen, here are the Berean believers. They were not critical of Paul's sermon style. They were not critical of its length or of its depth. What they were doing, though, was to, after the sermon, go study the scriptures to check whether or not Saul was sound. To see whether Paul's teaching was biblical and to further their understanding of biblical truth. I pray, I cry out to God for churches to be filled, with our church to be filled with people who hunger and thirst for the milk and the meat of God's Word. And so Jesus responds to the disciples' request and provides the interpretation of the wheat and weeds parable. He begins with identifying the landowner. He says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now back in the previous parable, the sower and soils, the owner was identified as both Jesus and the disciples. But here the sower is only the Son of Man. That title, Son of Man, is used by Jesus when referring to himself. The prophet Ezekiel, though, was also referred to as the Son of Man some 93 times in the book bearing his name. It was God's manner of denoting Ezekiel's humanity. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's identifying, he's emphasizing his humanity. But more than just his humanity, the title Son of Man identifies his humility. In Luke nine fifty eight, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In Matthew 9, 11, 19, the Son of Man is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, he's associated with the lowly of society. In His humility, He says in Matthew 17, 12, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Son of Man emphasizes His humanity, emphasizes His humility. Friends, it also emphasizes His deity. In Matthew 9, 6, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now that's a divine prerogative, to forgive sin. In Mark 2, 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That title, Lord, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Yahweh, the personal name of God. Jesus declares, I'm Yahweh, and as such, the Sabbath belongs to me. Matthew 26, 64, quoting Daniel seven thirteen, Jesus declares that the Son of Man is, will be sitting at the right hand of God. He is the Son of Man. He is God in the flesh. That's the landowner. Next, he explains that the field is the world. Previously, in the, fir- in the fir- first parable... The field represented the types of hearts that received the gospel. Here, though, the field is something altogether different. Here, the field is the world, the cosmos, the place where humanity dwells, the earth. Jesus, the Son of Man, has planted good seeds on the earth. Now, who or what are these good seeds? In the parable of the sower in the soils, the seed was the gospel, but not so here. Here. Here, Jesus identifies that the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Now, when that term sons, we ask, is enjoined to the kingdom, it refers to those who have the privilege of belonging to the kingdom, i.e., their kingdom citizens. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus enunciated eight characteristics of kingdom citizens. Noting that those who are kingdom citizens will what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus' point here is that the spiritual aspect of God's kingdom on earth is filled with kingdom citizens in this present age. Jesus is planting kingdom citizens in this world. Now who specifically are these kingdom citizens? The kingdom citizens today are the church. This amalgamation of Jews and Gentiles, Jewish and Gentile believers, called out from the world, set apart by God, to be in the words of Peter, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Friends, I need you to understand that the wheat, that's what this seed is going to produce, wheat. The wheat, the wheat seed, is not a reference to Israel, but to the church. That's who's the, who is the object in this parable. The church. Israel is represented by another type of seed. The barley. The barley. Now I told you a little bit ago to hold on to that fact I gave you about the planting of seeds. Yeah, barley and wheat planted at the same time, but the barley would be harvested around Passover. On the Feast of first fruits which is the first Sunday after Passover, the high priest would wave the first bar- bundle of barley before the Lord. In doing so, he proclaimed that the barley belonged to the Lord, and he guaranteed the future of the barley harvest. Now, following his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven on the Feast of fruits and he brought with him all the Old Testament era saints who had been kept in paradise, and he presents them to his father as a wave offering of barley to him. In doing so, Jesus guaranteed a future harvest of Israel, a future harvest of Jewish believers, and that future harvest will occur after the tribulation, when Israel will be redeemed. Now, Fifty days after first fruits. In the land of Israel, the wheat would be harvested. In time for the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the high priest would wave the first bundle of the wheat harvest before the Lord. And this offering proclaimed that the wheat belongs to the Lord, and it guarantees the future of the wheat harvest. Now, fifty days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ... The disciples are gathered in the upper room, and on that 50th day, on the day of Pentecost, on the Feast of Weeks, the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples and indwells them. They go out to the temple, they proclaim the gospel, to which some 3,000 souls are saved. You see, on the day of Pentecost, as the wheat harvest is being presented to Yahweh, the church was born. Those 3,000 souls are that first bundle of wheat waved before Yahweh and guarantees a future harvest of more wheat. And that future harvest of the wheat, that future harvest of the church, will occur at the rapture. That the wheat seed represents the church and is planted by Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23. In that prophecy, Yahweh says, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have compassion on her who have not obtained compassion. I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people. And they will say, You are my God. Listen, they were not my people. That's a reference to this new group, this new group of people, this conglomeration that is called the church. The church is the wheat, Israel's the barley. It's already been planted. But he says in Hosea, I'm going to plant another type of seed. And that's the church. Folks, wheat does not replace barley. The church is wheat. Israel is barley. And the church does not replace Israel. There will be a barley harvest. There's also going to be a wheat harvest. The culmination of the wheat harvest, the culmination of the church, will occur at the rapture. And seven years later, the barley harvest of Israel will occur at the return of Christ. Now, if the good seeds are the church, who are the weeds? Jesus says the tares are the sons of the evil one. That term, sons, we, us, again, those enjoined to a particular kingdom. But they're not part of God's kingdom. These weeds represent those who are part of the kingdom of the evil one. The evil one. That being Satan. The evil one, Satan, the devil. Jesus says he's the enemy of the landowner. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. That term devil, diabolos. The accuser, the slanderer. Revelation 12, 9-10 says that serpent of old is called the devil and Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. Satan is the enemy because he is the antithesis of all that God is. If God is the embodiment of all that is good and holy, then Satan is the embodiment of all that is wicked, corrupt, and evil. In 1 John 5, 19, the Apostle declares that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When Paul stood before King Agrippa in Acts 26, 18, he asserted that God commissioned him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and leave behind from the, the, Satan of, the domain of Satan and be enjoined to the domain of God or the kingdom of God. You see, my friends, without the Messiah, every person, every man, woman, and child born in this world is living under the power and dominion of the evil one, Satan. But when you repent of your sin, when you believe the gospel, you are rescued out of Satan's kingdom and you are placed into God's kingdom and made a citizen of that kingdom. Now understand here that in his hatred for God, during this present age, while the kingdom is in its spiritual form, while the church has been planted, Satan has come along under the cover of night and planted unbelievers' weeds into The church. False believers are being intermingled with genuine believers during this present time. And like Darnell, these pseudo-disciples look just like wheat. Just like genuine disciples. Jesus goes on to say, the harvest is the end of the age. Now as soon as they heard that word harvest, they had two thoughts. For a a Jew, the word harvest implies either judgment or a regathering. You see, in Joel 3.13, Yahweh says, I'm going to judge Israel's enemies. Put in the sickle because the harvest is ripe. So harvest implies some kind of judgment. But on the other hand, in Isaiah 27.12, Isaiah says, In that day the Lord will start His threshing from the flowing streams of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be regathered one by one, O Israel. Alright, so for Israel, the harvest is not only a time of judgment for the unbelievers, but a time of regathering for the believer. Notice when this harvest occurs, at the end of the age. That word end, (suntilia) refers to the completion or the consummation of something. The age, the eon, it's the historical era. There's a particular historical era that when it comes, when it culminates, when it's completed, then this harvest will come. Now, I need you to understand that biblically, there are three specific eras. There is a past, there is a present, there is a future era. There is the past age, Romans 16, 25. The revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret in past ages. There's the present age, Titus 2, 12, in which we as believers are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And there's a future age, sometimes referred to as the age to come. In Ephesians 2, 7, it says, In the future age, or in the age to come, He will show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So there's three ages. Past, present, future. Within these three ages, there are what we call specific dispensations. Now I need you to bear with me. Because what I'm about to share with you is going to not only be important for today, but for the remainder of our parables. We need to understand the ages, and the dispensations within them. The term dispensation, oikonomia, refers to an administration or stewardship. It's the management of the affairs of a household. Paul says that he is a, has a dispensation or a stewardship entrusted to him in 1 Corinthians 9.17. Colossians 1.25, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the dispensation or the stewardship from God. And it's a stewardship, it's a dispensation of God's grace in Ephesians 3.2. Now theologically, that idea of a dispensation or stewardship means that we have to view human history as a household run by God. History is a household run by God. We'll see this, not now, but later in the parable of the shrewd manager in the book of Luke, chapter 16. In that shrewd manager parable, we understand how a dispensation operates. You see, God is the householder. He delegates duties or responsibilities to His people. The people serve as stewards overseeing God's household. And if the steward fails, the householder has the authority to remove the responsibility and give it to another group of people. And that's exactly what we see happen here in Matthew with Israel and the church. Israel had been the steward of God's household. But when they rejected the king, the landowner, the homeowner, Jesus, removed the stewardship and gave it to another, i.e. the church. Now there's three key features to a dispensation. There's a testing, there's a failure, there's a judgment. In every dispensation, revelation is given by God to test humanity. And humanity in turn fails to obey that revelation. And as a result, God brings judgment. I also want to give you a couple quick facts here that you can mark down. Salvation, regardless of the dispensation, is always the same. It's by faith through grace. In every dispensation, faith is always enjoined to repentance. The object is always the Messiah. So, though there's various dispensations, the means of salvation is always the same. Secondly, I want you to add to that that In each dispensation, God's grace is operational. God's grace is always apparent in every dispensation. And number three, there is new revelation in each dispensation. But even though there's new revelation, it doesn't undo or disavow the first. God's revelation is progressive. It's cumulative. Each builds on the other. So if you're down here in the fifth dispensation, guess what? You're responsible for all the word, of all the revelation that came in the preceding four. Okay? There are seven dispensations. I'm just going to briefly go over them. We'll touch on them much over the next several weeks. In the past, there are five dispensations. Number one, innocence, Genesis 1 to 3. The test was do not eat. The failure was they ate. The judgment was cur- the curse and death. The second dispensation was conscience. understand these names just give an overview of the typical character of that dispensation. We have the dispensation of conscience, Genesis 3 through 8. The test, do good. They failed. There was great wickedness. There was a judgment, the universal flood. Then we had the dispensation of government in Genesis 9 to 11. The test, scatter and multiply. The failure, they refused to scatter. The judgment, the confusion of languages. Then we come to the dispensation of promise in Genesis 12 to Exodus 19. The test, dwell in the land of Canaan. The failure was they dwelt in the land of Egypt. The judgment was Egyptian bondage. Then we come to the dispensation of law in Exodus 20 through Acts chapter 1. The test was obey the law. The failure was they broke the law. And the judgment was a worldwide dispersion of God's people. God's people were scattered. Now we come to the present age where you and I live. We're living in the dispensation called the church, Acts 2 to Revelation 20. The test today is receive the Messiah as Savior and Lord. The failure today is a rejection of Messiah as Savior and Lord. And this present age, this dispensation of the church is going to end with the judgment known as the Great Tribulation. And then we have the future age in which we'll have the dispensation of the kingdom, Revelation 20 to 22. The test in that, in that dispensation will be to obey and worship the Messiah. There will be a failure. There will be a final great rebellion. And it will end in the judgment called the great white throne and lake of fire. Now my friends, we just overviewed the entire scripture. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. History is God's household. And in each successive dispensation, he has appointed a people to be a steward of his household. That's on us right now. Now, going back to Matthew 13, when Jesus refers to the end of the age, he's referring to the culmination of this present age. And how is this age going to end? It's going to end in a judgment called the Great White Throne. Or, excuse me, the Great Tribulation. Okay, the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is going to be a period of harvest. In the days preceding the great tribulation, the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. We call that the rapture of the church. That is phase one of the second advent of Jesus. And that rapture is when this wheat called the church, is going to be harvested. We're going to be caught up into the barn, into the heaven. Now, seven years pass. At the end of the great tribulation, Jesus is going to return and establish His kingdom. This is phase two. Phase two is the, of the second coming, or the second advent, is the return of Jesus. This is when He will dispatch the reapers, the angels, as He says... And just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Again, when does the present age end? With the great tribulation. Okay. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, they will gather out of the kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Notice how He depicts the tares, the weeds. He calls the weeds stumbling blocks and committers are doers of lawlessness. Now that word stumbling block is unique. Scandalon. We saw that word before, scandalizo, back in verse 21. Remember the rocky soil in the sower and soil parable where those who heard the gospel but scandalizo fell away. These stumbling blocks that are going to be gathered up at the end of the great tribulation are those people who, if it was to begin today, are currently in the church but who have never possessed genuine faith. They professed it, but never possessed it. Instead, they gave up what is true, and they believed what is false. Can you imagine if the rapture of the church was to happen now? What would you do if you were still sitting here? Let me tell you something. You ought to recognize you weren't wheat, but you're a weed. Then the lawless ones... These anomias, these ones who live in open defiance of God's law. Listen, this fits right with the other group. So you got the rocky soil. This is the thorny soil. Now, back in Matthew seven, you'll recall what Jesus said. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and do that in your name? Blah blah blah. Jesus said, "What? Depart from me, you what who perform who commit lawlessness." They masquerade as kingdom citizens. They confess His lordship with their lips. They imitate His works, but they never submit to His lordship. They're just like the thorny soil. They will not refuse, or excuse me, they will not repent of their sin. They want to continue in their pleasure and in their materialism. And my friends, I'm afraid that the church today is filled with many professing faith who yet refuse to repent and still continue in their sin. And if the harvest was to happen today and the wheat was gone... There'd be weeds left behind. That's what Jesus says in the parable. Satan has planted weeds in the church. And they're planted by Satan. Notice what happens to them. The angels will throw them into the furnace of fire. That's hell. And if you think hell's a party, Jesus goes on to say, in that place... There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the great tribulation, the angels are going to gather up all the unregenerate, the rock, those rocky soil, that thorny soil, and is going to cast it into hell where they're going to be tormented. But what about the wheat? What happens to the wheat? What happens to the genuine believer? In this present age, that's us, the church. Jesus quotes Daniel 12.3. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father." The righteous, that's those who obey God and His law. And why are they obedient? Because they're genuinely saved. They've received Christ's righteousness. And they're going to shine forth as the sun. Now the sun is a picture of light. The Father, God the Father is light. Jesus is the light of the world. And are not we to be ones who are like candles in cities? Candles in our homes, cities in the world. Letting the light of Jesus shine through us. That's what it means for us to shine forth as the sun. In this present age, we've got to shine as the sun. And when Jesus returns, friends, He's going to establish the physical aspect of His kingdom on earth. And this spiritual aspect will merge with the physical. And we as the righteous will be welcomed into the kingdom of our Father. You know, presently we pray to the Father and request that His kingdom come. My friends, when that kingdom comes, we who are the redeemed, the church, will be at home when it does. Matthew 13 closes, or this passage, part of Matthew 13 closes, He who has ears, let him hear. If you've got spiritual ears, perk them up and listen to what Jesus has said. If you lack spiritual ears, that means you've chosen not to listen at all. So he who has spiritual ears, Jesus commands, let him hear. Friend, if you've listened to this sermon, you need to listen and obey. That's what it means, hear and do. Be wheat. Don't be a weed. The wheat represents the sons of the kingdom. That's you and I, the church. But the weeds are the pseudo-believers. You know, I want to close with this verse, 1 John 1.10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. The sons of God and the sons of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Yes, wheat and weeds are hard to distinguish for a time. But it's not impossible. When the fruit, when the ear of grain begins to appear, then we can tell the difference. And he gives us the fruit we're supposed to be looking for. Do they practice righteousness? Are you obeying God's law, and are you loving one another? If you're not obeying God's law, if you're not loving your fellow believer, I got a word for you: you're not wheat. You're weeds. And while it is yet light, I would I would prompt you to confess your sin and believe the gospel. Be genuine soil. Don't be rocky, don't be thorny, because your end will be in hell. What type of grain are you producing? My friends, the infiltration of this weed will not last. The day is coming when the angels are going to go forth and separate the weeds from the wheat. But the righteous were prepared. So let's look up and let's listen for the sound of the trumpet. Father God, Lord, as we come before you, We come again in the matchless name of Jesus. We come before your throne of grace. We come looking for grace. We look for mercy. We praise you because in your wise and infinite plan, you have revealed to us the mysteries of your kingdom. And Father, we praise you because you've allowed us to be part of that plan. You've given us a window to look into the infinite wisdom of the divine. And we we can only say thank you. And again, thank you. Father, help us as we live in this present age. It is an evil age. Father, it's easy to become overwhelmed by the growing wickedness. It's easy to become discouraged to see within the body of Christ so many pseudo-believers. Father, help us to keep our eyes and ears always upon you. Father, I would ask and pray that you forgive us Forgive us if we have no desire for your word. Forgive us when we place other priorities over the study of your word. Forgive us of our critical spirits when it comes to the proclamation of your word. And renew in us a desire to hear and see your word so that we may know and obey it. Father, direct our steps, guide our paths until your kingdom comes. And until it does, may we continue to please you and praise you. Amen.